0: neighbor you are listening to the new garden church podcast we're glad you're here this year we are walking through the whole bible together as a church family day by day and week by week we're meeting online right now but we normally meet at 10 a.m at dupont tyler middle school in hermitage tennessee you can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online we would love to hear from you If you're local in the Nashville area, we'd like to let you know about something we are hosting this weekend. On Saturday morning, January 30th, we will be hosting a mobile food pantry at DuPont Tyler Middle School, and we'll be literally giving away a truckload of free food to whoever has use for it. So you can go ahead and spread the word or make plans to join us then. For more information, you can check out www.forhermitage.com. This week, we began the book of Exodus on our journey through the Bible with Jeff giving us a message on Moses and how a greater understanding of Hebrew literature can help us understand the story in a new way. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon.
1: Good morning and welcome to week four of Long Story Short. It is January 24th, which means we are 24 days into our reading plan. And today you should find yourself halfway through the book of Exodus, standing with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. But we're not going to talk about that today. Don't worry, we will. The Israelites are going to be in this very spot for quite a while. The rest of Exodus all of Leviticus, and all the way to Numbers 10, 11. So we'll have time to talk about Sinai. But today, we need to talk about how they got here and who got them here. Now, if you remember where we left off last week, we were in Egypt following the story of Joseph through his ups and downs. But we saw how God strategically placed him in a position so that he could rescue not only the people of Egypt, but also the family of Israel from this devastating famine. We also saw that despite the harm intended by his brothers, Joseph reminded them that God can continue to work out his plan of blessing for all nations and bring good out of the bad. So, the book of Genesis ends on a high note. But then you turn the page, and in the first chapter of Exodus, things take a major turn. There is this change in leadership, and the story of the Hebrew people becomes one of an enslaved nation. And that chapter lasts like 400 years. And yet, Despite their social position and life circumstances, the people continue to multiply. Now this scares Pharaoh and he tries to convince the Egyptian people that the Hebrews are like bugs multiplying and becoming this problem that, that needs to be squashed. So he makes a plan with two midwives to limit the population growth by having them kill any newborn baby that is a boy, and then handing it to the mother, like trying to convince her that the child died in childbirth. Well, the midwives fear God, and they find a way around this. Now, Pharaoh is angry and undeterred, so he ratches it up a notch, and he tells the whole nation of Egypt, if you see a Hebrew baby boy, take it from its family and throw it in the Nile River to drown. Now, I think maybe we read over that a little bit. Like, we know the story too well the leader of a nation, is asking all of his citizens to commit, commit mass genocide. Like This is not a request to his military soldiers. This is to everybody, housewives and carpenters, teenagers and the elderly. Like They all get enlisted into Pharaoh's attempt to quell this unseen insurrection. And he does it by changing the way the Egyptians see the Hebrew people, not as people. He tried uh, lowering their social standing to that of a slave, but now they aren't even good enough to be human slaves. They're like bugs and snakes. They're an infestation. And so you read the first chapter, and it is shocking. It is a far cry from the good world God created in the original first chapter. The sense of humanity and respect of bearing God's image seems to it seems to have been taken away from these Hebrew people. But the Hebrew people are supposed to be God's chosen people. Like These are the people of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. The people of the promise. So, what is God up to? We turn the page to chapter 2, and you find an answer. A baby. A baby boy. And you think, well, there goes that plan. I mean, we just read that that kid is going to get thrown in the Nile. End of the story. But the story says, when the mother saw that he was good... Mm, Red flags and whistles go off in our heads. Have you read any other stories about seeing things that are good? Well, page one. It seems like everything God creates, He sees that it is good. Great story. Happy face. Thumbs up. Then you get to page three. And we find a woman standing before a tree, and she sees that the fruit is good. Oh, not so great story. Sad face, thumbs down. And we wonder, what kind of story is this going to be? Well, she hides the baby away for three months, but she can't hide him any longer. And so she follows through with Pharaoh's order. She puts the baby in the Nile, but she places him in a basket. Now, the original Hebrew picks up on something that we might miss here. The Hebrew word, is Tevah. And it's only used in one other story in the Bible, the story of Noah and the ark. God asks Noah to build a Tevah. So maybe in your Bible, you just write the word ark over the word basket in the Moses story. Because if you were to read that again, like bells and alarms, oh man, remember how God brought salvation and rescue through an ark Earlier in the story, I wonder if he's going to do that. Again, the ark is placed among the reeds. Now, this is the Hebrew word Suf or reeds. It's the word that describes the sea that the Israelite people will be delivered through when they leave Egypt. The Suf sea or the sea of reeds. So, in just the first couple of verses of the Moses story, look, we're being set up for a deliverance story. But if you look at the cast so far, like we found a bunch of flawed... Frailed humans who often fail more than they succeed, and yet God continues to be faithful to his promises, working out his plan for salvation for Israel and all the nations. So we wonder what kind of human is this baby going to be? Well, the next three chapters really develop Moses' Moses' origin story. Now, when we talk about story, or at least a good story, it has to include two things, intention and obstacle. A character who wants something and has to overcome conflict to get it. Now, if we can read the story carefully, I think we can figure out what this is. And when we figure out what the story is all about, then the story begins to have meaning beyond like a bunch of random things that happened to Moses. So I want to go ahead and give you what I think the intention and the obstacle of the story is, okay? Now you might come up with something different and I would love to hear it because I think the Bible works on many different levels, can say all kinds of different things all at the same time. But mine is this, the character who wants something is God. God intends that Moses become the leader of his people, but the obstacle is Moses doesn't want to do that. And to dig deeper, he doesn't want to because he doesn't know who he is. He's having a crisis of identity. And he would rather disengage and live in his own little world tending flocks than do what God wants him to do. Now for thousands of years, Jewish rabbis have likened the scriptures to a diamond that when you turn a diamond, there's always a new facet to look through. And if we read this story 10 times, we could probably learn 10 things with it. And my struggle is wanting to talk about all 10 things at once this morning, and we can't do that. So let's look at one. I've already said it and I'll say it again at the end, but let's remember at least one thing today God is faithful. Humans are often frail and fail, but God is faithful. He keeps His promises. Now, if you didn't read the origin story of Moses this past week, I would recommend going back and reading it this week. It's just four chapters Exodus 1 through 4. But here's a brief recap, and then we'll dive into some detail. So Pharaoh has said all the baby boys must be killed. Moses is placed in an ark in the Nile. Then the daughter of Pharaoh finds him and adopts him while still allowing Moses' mother to nurse him as a baby. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. And when he's grown up, it says that he goes out to see the hard labor of his Hebrew brothers. So just a side note, the Bible doesn't always give us the details we want to know. Like why does Moses go out now to see this? Has he Known all along where he came from, or did he finally grow up and his mom sits him down and tells him the whole story? And so he's motivated to go see them as brothers now and not as slaves. Like we don't know, but it's intriguing to think about. Now, when he goes out, he sees an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew man and he steps in and kills the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. Then the next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrew men fighting and steps in between. And then one of them says, who do you think you are, right? Like, who made you judge and ruler? Are you going to kill me? Like, you know, you killed that guy yesterday. Are you going to exact justice like you did to that Egyptian? Well, Moses gets scared that people know what he did. And then it says Pharaoh puts a death sentence on Moses' head. So he Moses flees to Midian. While in Midian, he saves a woman at a well. They get married, and then Moses moves in with his father-in-law and takes care of his sheep for 40 years. Then one day, God appears to him in this burning bush, and Moses goes back to Egypt for a showdown with Pharaoh, which we'll talk about next week. So I just want to try and give us a structure of the story from a wide angle. So now we can go back and look at a few details that maybe we've never noticed before. Biblical writers can best be described as literary ninjas. Now, I believe the Bible is both a divine and human work. God working through people, but not in some trance state, like they, they are wake up and they're like, oh, I wrote the book of Jeremiah. Like these are stories that are crafted in a way that they're told. Repeated words, similar settings, correlating character arcs and other things. And one of the litera- literary devices is chiasm, which is a sequence of events of a sentence or verse or paragraph, chapter, even a book, which are put in an Order, and then repeated and developed, but in reverse order. Now, we've talked about this in other lessons, like in the book of Jonah, or here's one from the story of Noah. Often, chiasms lead to a middle statement to highlight a certain point, such as in the story of Noah. God remembered. But in addition to just highlighting a middle conclusion, the mirroring statements often help bring light and develop each other. And There appears to be some large chiasm working in the Moses story with the burning bush episode sitting at the middle. So if you think of it in three parts, you have the burning bush in the middle with the prologue before the burning bush and an epilogue following the burning bush. And there are statements in the prologue that are mirrored by statements in the epilogue. Both the prologue and the epilogue, they break down into like these four sections. And we're going to look at the verses within those four sections that echo each other. So I want to look at a few of these today. And then just ponder, like, what they might be saying to us to give us a fuller picture of what is going on in this story as God wants Moses to be the leader of Israel, but Moses objects. And I'll, I'll post some of this information on the website and the Facebook group if you want to go back and, like, reread it with these notes. It would be probably bring a lot to light. Uh, So let's start with the epilogue at the bottom, and then we'll read the prologue and see what connects. So right after God speaks to Moses from the burning bush, verse 18 of chapter 4 says, Then Moses departed and returned to his father in law Jethro. So Moses is at Mount Horeb and he leaves to go back to his father in law Jethro. So let's look at the verses in the prologue and see if we see a mirror verse. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Moses was at Mount Horeb and he leaves to return to his father-in-law Jethro. But in the prologue, he's with his father-in-law Jethro and he leaves to go to Mount Horeb. Do you see the connection, the mirror? Yeah, okay. Okay, that's an easy one, all right? We'll keep reading the epilogue. And said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brothers who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. So Moses says to Jethro, let me go back to see something and something specific. See his brothers in Egypt and to see if they're still alive. So let's look at the prologue. Does Moses go to see something specific? Verse 3. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burning up. So instead of go to return, Moses stops to turn aside to see this marvelous sight, specifically this bush that is not burning up. Now, this is where for thousands of years, rabbis just sit around and speculate with each other. I mean, there's no Twitter to distract you. There's no Netflix to eat up your evening. All you have is the Bible to talk about. So what's going on with these two verses and why a burning bush? Have you ever wondered about the bush? I mean, it's a cool picture and I've never seen anything like it in like real life, but in another sense, it's also pretty normal, like a bush on fire. How long do you have to stare at that before you notice that it's not burning up? Like. A more eye-catching miracle would have been like four camels floating in the air playing guitars and singing roar by Katy Perry. That will stop you in your tracks. Why a burning bush? I think it has something to do with what Moses wants to see in both verses. He wants to see this bush that's on fire and why it's not burning up. And he wants to see his Hebrew brothers in Egypt to see if they're still alive. So there's a connection between the bush and the Hebrews. There's something intriguing to Moses about a bush that can endure a fire that would consume any other plant, and it's connected to a people enduring hardship that should destroy them. Like, what if the bush represents the people of Israel? They're foreigners in a strange land who have been oppressed, enslaved, and murdered. How is it that they could survive such an existence? Because God made a promise. And he is faithful. Like, these are his chosen people, and he will not let them be consumed. So this is Moses' question. Could they still be alive? Like, I've seen their life. I've seen the genocide. Could they still survive? And yet the bush is not consumed, and the Hebrew people continue to endure. Next sentence. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So what happens in the prologue when God calls to Moses? Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So instead of go in peace, we have stop, you're in danger. Now in Hebrew, you can even hear this reversal. Peace is the word shalom. And the words related to removing your sandal turn into this lom shah. So you've got shalom, lom shah. (laughs) All right, we move into the next section, verse 19 of chapter 4. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And in the prologue we have in verse 23 of chapter 3, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. So Pharaoh dies, and then God tells Moses that Pharaoh has died. So we move out of section, verse 20 of chapter 4. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey. So Moses takes his wife and sons. Is there somewhere in the prologue that Moses takes his wife and it mentions mentions his son? Chapter 3 verse 21. After he's the hero at the well and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses, then she gave birth A son. So he takes her as a wife and then they have a son. Later he takes his wife and son and puts them on donkeys. We move out to this final section. Chapter 4, verse 21 says, This is what the Lord says Israel is my son, my firstborn. And then chapter 3, verse 12 says, So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck and killed the Egyptian. Now, we may not see the connection here, but in the Hebrew, there's this repeated ko sound in both of these sentences. Now, we'll move on to the next verse in the epilogue, verse 23 of chapter 4. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I'm going to kill your son, your firstborn. So God is telling Moses to give Pharaoh a warning. It's like this verbal death threat. Now, is there some sort of verbal death threat in the prologue? Chapter three, verse 14. But he said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He said to him, are you going to kill me? And then God says to Moses, like, I am going to kill. So then Moses leaves. And while he is at this overnight lodging place, it says in verse 24, but it came about, at the overnight encampment on the way, that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Now, did anybody else read that this week and think, whoa, time out, <laughs> Wait, why would God be trying to kill Moses? It's such a strange story, and it gets stranger here in a few verses, but what is the point of this? Well, again, having the Bible give us commentary to itself can be very helpful. So is there someone in the prologue that tries to kill Moses? Chapter 3, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard about this matter, he tried to kill Moses. So the author is giving us some sort of connection between Pharaoh and God. It's an odd pairing. But think about what they represent from Moses' perspective. They're both fathers. Pharaoh would have been Moses' adopted father. Um, Moses is like a Prince of Egypt and God is this Heavenly Father who cares for the world. Pharaoh is king of Egypt. God is king of creation. So why would these kings want to kill Moses and what do they have in common? Well if you look at the prologue you read this. Now it came about in those days When Moses had grown up, that he went out to his fellow Hebrews and looked at their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew man, one of his fellow Hebrews. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no one around, he struck and killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. Now he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard about this matter, he tried to kill Moses. So Moses, day one, kills an Egyptian. Day two, Moses steps in between two Hebrews. And then after that, we get verse 15. When Pharaoh heard about this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Now we tend to think Pharaoh heard about the murder and went after Moses because murdering an Egyptian is worse than breaking up a fight, right? But verse 15 happens after the second scene. So, did Pharaoh hear about the murder or did he hear about the second scene? And the wording is ambiguous, but since it's only after the second scene that Pharaoh goes after Moses, it would seem the problem is this interaction with the Hebrews. What's the big deal? Well, it's the response of one of the Hebrews. Who made you ruler and judge? In Egypt, there is one person who decides right and wrong, one person who executes judgment. And if anybody tries to take the throne, there will be trouble. So it makes it look like Pharaoh's problem with Moses is that Moses is trying to take the place of the king to make the decisions, to decide how things should be done. So if we take that idea and apply it to the epilogue where God is trying to kill Moses, it starts to make a little bit more sense. What has Moses not done? Apparently we learn he has not performed circumcision on his son and perhaps himself either. Now this was the sign of the covenant with Abraham. It's what made the Hebrews a distinct people. And he is not committed to being on the team. It's as if if he's saying, okay, God, I'll do most of the things you ask. I'll stand by Aaron. I'll be your spokesman uh, to Pharaoh, but I'm not willing to like sign the dotted line and make this official. And this isn't anything new with Moses. I mean, at the burning bush, God tells Moses He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has seen the oppression of the people. He has heard their cries. And God is sending Moses to bring them out. And what does Moses do? He objects five times. Who am I? I don't know your name. What if they don't believe me? I'm not a good speaker. And finally, he just says, just send somebody else. Like Moses is more reluctant than he is leader, but I think it's his, his reluctance. It stems from this deeper question of who am I? Am I an Egyptian or am I a Hebrew? Moses is about to have this double family reunion. He's about to meet his blood brother in Aaron, who he may not have even knew existed in, until God tells him. But more than that, as a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, Moses grew up in the palace, presumably with all the other sons of Pharaoh. And what got this whole burning bush thing going was that the old Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh has taken the throne. More than likely, it's a man Moses would have known as brother. So Moses is torn between two families. The oppressor now sees himself as one of the oppressed, but whose side is he going to stand on? It seems like Moses still hasn't made a decision and God is trying to kill him over it. Then his wife Zipporah steps in, circumcises their son, touches Moses in a way of saving Moses's life as well. And and it's a way of, Them saying once and for all, our family is a Hebrew family now and forever. So if you look at the prologue, you find a story about Moses saving Zipporah from harm and then marrying her. The saver marries the saved. And what happens in the epilogue? Zipporah saves Moses from harm. And then she says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Not a husband. It's like she's saying, I am now marrying you. You are my bridegroom. But the reason she has to save Moses It's because Moses has not yet awakened or committed to who he is and what family he is a part of. And it's only now at the end with this weird conclusion that the story can continue. So once again, we find humans who continue to mess with the plan, yet God is faithful. Humans are frail and fail, but God is faithful. He made a promise to Abraham, and he will see it accomplished, even if he has to pursue and woo and convince a broken and flawed humanity to do it. Now, there's more we could say about Moses and his identity crisis, but we'll stop here and we'll ask the question, what about us? how often is our confusion about life and our desire to disengage relate to our knowledge of who we are in Christ or the lack thereof? It goes all the way back to the first words of the enemy. Did God really say? God says, you are loved. Did God really say? You are my child. Did God really say? You are forgiven. Did God really say? You are redeemed. Did God really say? You are mine. You see, Words are one thing, and we should be able to stand on God's words. But He knows us, which is why He puts His words into action. Now, we'll read all about that throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But when you turn the page into the Gospels, the New Testament, we see a new level of God's Word in action. John says, "...the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth." The author of Hebrews starts their letter with, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. The way Jesus ascended to his throne in heaven was by a cross here on earth, defeating sin and death and ushering in a new kingdom that we have been invited to participate in. But the devil is a liar, and he continues to berate us with, you're not good enough, you don't know enough, you don't believe strong enough, you know what you have done. But these lies aren't new. As the great deceiver did his work in the first century, Peter had to remind the followers of Jesus with the truth in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we go to the table today, let us remember who we are, often frail, but always forgiven. And let us remember who God is, a father and king who is faithful to keep his promises. He loves us. We see that in Exodus and we see that at the cross.
0: That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.